Father, we come before you and we worship you. You are the God of peace. We want to humble ourselves before you. We want to bring those we love before you and we commend to your gracious care and keeping all the men and the women of our armed forces. We pray that you would defend them both day and night and day by day with your heavenly grace. You would strengthen them in the trials and temptations that they have. Give them courage to face the perils which beset them. Grant them a sense of your abiding presence wherever they may be. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen. Thank you. So, this week, the name for our Parsha is Vayigash, meaning he approached. And it's um, more or less going to take us through the second to last um, piece of Genesis in our uh, in our Parsha readings of the Torah uh, that has pretty much all the action. Um, I'm sure next week we'll have fun talking through the blessings um, of Jacob's sons. But for this week, how on earth do we get to that point? How does Israel in its earliest stage as one family manage to survive? That is the framing for this Parsha this week. Judah, uh, if you're not familiar, approaches Joseph and pleads for the release of Benjamin, offering himself even as a slave to Joseph, as an Egyptian ruler, uh, in Benjamin's stead. And yet, Joseph, seeing his brothers' loyalty to each other, which is exactly what they did not demonstrate when they had turned him over and sold him into slavery in Egypt, when Joseph sees how his brothers have matured, have, have grown up, he decides in this Parsha to reveal his identity to them and asks, is my father still alive? Now, the brothers in this grand scene, we might even read through a bit of it in a second. But those brothers are overcome with shame, as I think we all agree they should be, even if it's many years late, <laughs> and remorse. But shame and remorse doesn't end in condemnation. It doesn't, it's not supposed to end in just final desperate, you know, despairing our sin. It allows an opportunity for comfort. And that's exactly what we find Joseph doing. And he tells them one of my favorite verses in scripture, it was not you who sent me here, but God. It has been ordained from above to save us in the entire region from famine. What you had purposed as evil for me, God worked into good. That is a really powerful thought to hold to sit with, to look for. Uh, and sometimes it might feel inappropriate to jump to because you have to go through the suffering that Joseph went through before you can really turn the wheels and focus now on what God might be doing in the midst of it. But it is a beautiful thing to wait for and to see that God can repurpose evil for good. And he's not only doing that in the lives of these brothers, he's going to do that later for a divided kingdom, one of which has already fallen 150 years prior, and one that is right on the verge or in the process of its collapse. And that's what Ezekiel is looking at in chapter 37, which we'll go to in just a moment. Um, want to mention as well, 
though we did touch on this last week, we got a little excited and jumped ahead. Joseph's cunning, <laughs> Joseph's shrewdness, which the author of Genesis doesn't seem to condemn, even though it looks like the Egyptians are getting a bad deal. They say, hey, we can't survive. We're going to starve. Here's all of our money. And eventually the money runs out. And they say, okay, no more money, but will you take livestock? And he says, sure, okay. And so he barters um, all the Egyptians for livestock. And finally, they have nothing left to give, and they make this plea. I'll actually go in just a moment um, to read it directly. But in summary, they make this plea of it's it's either taking our land or our, our death. And ultimately, a ruler wants people to survive so they can be ruled, at least. Even the most evil rulers care to some degree about the lives of their people. And Joseph, much more so, seemingly to be compassionate, takes that deal and says, sure. And he amasses great wealth for Pharaoh. And this is why, at least up to the point when the author of Genesis is writing or first telling this story, that is why Egyptian society is set up where approximately one-fifth of whatever they make, 20-ish percent, goes to Pharaoh. This is a holdover of those days when Joseph, through his shrewdness, saved all of Egypt and its ruling lands and made quite a, quite a great name for Pharaoh in the process. And if, if nothing else, I hope that this story of Joseph's success reminds us of how stinging it must be when Exodus opens by saying, there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. It's not simple ignorance there. Yes, Aaron, you got a, you got a thought? Yes. Please. The, this, this, everything you've been, that you say, um, the, 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 the Jewish exegetes go in lots of obviously many directions trying to, to fathom what's going on. And, um, one stream says, uh, Joseph shouldn't have done this, right? Because hmm. he's basically plundered everybody. Sure. Okay. So therefore they blame him for the suffering of Israel under under pharaoh wow. i kid you not and you're like oh my gosh really <laughs> that, that's how you that's how you get there there's a yeah with well, the reason we suffer is because that guy stole all the stuff um wow. the, it, it's very interesting how rabbis read the text hmm. um uh joseph's 10 times in the in in the parasha mm -hmm. um uh joseph is told by his brothers our father, your servant. And uh, so it happens 10 times. And Joseph says nothing. And Joseph lives until 110. Hmm. So according to Jewish tradition, you're supposed to live to 120. So where did he lose his other 10 years from? And they say, because of this, he didn't honor his father by saying, he's not, not, he's not my servant. He's my father. Yeah. Right? So it's, it's very interesting how they flip things around from the way we see it. Yeah. Uh, which is, which is the, which is, um, I find, I mean, I wouldn't agree with it, but the point, the point is they, they, they read the text with a fine tooth comb and they say, look, you're supposed to honor your parents. He doesn't. So God's going to take 10, 10 years from him. He rips off the Egyptians. So therefore the Egyptians will rip off the Israelites. Wow. Meida, Kenegid Meida, measure for measure. Mm. Um, which, I don't know how you guys feel about that, but 
that's that's Jewish exegesis for you and and uh, <laughs> this is interesting. Yeah, to think that uh, two people with an interest in the text and keeping heroes as heroes and villains as villains for the most part will still, you know, people do this with Jonah quite a bit if they think that he is um, if forgiven by God and that's why he spat up or if he spat up out of disgust, you know, you've got these really beautiful little Good forks point. in the road. Yep. And I have to admit, as someone who's only read through this um, with the limited resources I have, uh, I've come away with the belief that the author of Genesis is not trying to make um, an enemy out of Joseph. And so now I'm kind of wedging myself into that whole, how can I read it in such a way where Joseph remains a good guy? And yet that is an interpretive di you know, difference that we set early on and it informs the rest of our reading. So well, to know what they that, do, mm -hmm. what they do in Jewish tradition is you have multiple levels of reading. Mm -hmm. So I actually run three or four uh, concurrent versions and they all might be completely contradictory but they'll run them all together just so mm -hmm. that they can embrace all all uh, all options so for example um uh during shavuot you read the megillah ruth and in the middle of the night ruth goes in the middle of the night dressed in her best all perfumed up and touches Boaz's leg, mm -hmm. right? That's what the text says. Yeah, right. And um, and people go, you know. So you got one stream that says, "Look how honest she was and how pure she was. She went yeah. in the night, so she no one could see." And there would be, you know. And then there's the other version that says, "Yeah, well, look at the brazen hussy," you know. Um, and they can say they can take exactly the same text and go in two different directions. But the point is, you can use that text in any situation in your community. So as mm -hmm. a rabbi, you could preach to your daughters of the community and say, be like Ruth, be pure, be holy, don't mm -hmm. do anything, you know, be good. Or you, can, or you can preach to your daughters who have done something bad, feel like they're an absolute mess and, and absolutely worthless now before God. And you could say, look at Ruth. She, she did some things that were bad, but God redeemed it, and He made the Messiah from her. So you can, you God can redeem you too, wow. you know. So you can take the same text, and you can talk to two different women, and encourage both of them. And I think, and I think that's actually the best way to approach the text. That's actually, I think, the Hebraic way to approach the text is mm -hmm. to run it on multiple levels, and just say, sure, yeah, both are fine. Wow. That's hard as Protestants, but I think we can do it. <laughs> yeah, and if if nothing more than a thought experiment that that helps us um, widen our our worldview and understand how other people engage with the text and how we can respectfully mm. engage them as they engage the text, that's a skill we need and one I look forward to uh, developing here while talking with you guys. So the haftorah that uh, that's chosen for this is necessarily looking for a link. They always do. And uh, except I think last week uh, it was um, chosen. It might be one exception because we had the Chag of uh, Hanukkah. Uh, it was kind of deferential to Hanukkah rather than a connection to the Parsha. Uh, or at least at, at best it held both. But this week we see uh, these two main characters at the beginning, which is Judah and Joseph. And 
Ezekiel jumps straight into that. Um, it almost begs the question, was he thinking of this scene exactly because he sees how the nations come from these two brothers and these nations arise because they survive and they survive because Joseph reveals himself to his brothers. And he does this because of Judah's one momentary confession approaching him. All of this seems to hang on uh, a vital moment. And I want us to hold that intention as we look at the um, Haftarah today. Let me see if I'm able to share my screen it may or may not work because this is a new computer I have not quite broken in. It doesn't look like I can. So we'll need to suffice um, simply to hear the reading, if that's all right with everybody else. Okay. Let's go here to Ezekiel 37, verses 15 to 28. Ezekiel 37, 15. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, take a stick and write on it, for Judah and the people of Israel associated with him. Then take another stick and write on it, for Joseph, the stick of Ephraim, and all the house of Israel associated with him. And join them one to another into one stick, that they may become one in your hand. And when your people say to you, will you not tell us what you mean by these? Say to them, thus says the Lord God. Behold, I am about to take the stick of Joseph, that is in the hand of Ephraim, and the tribes of Israel associated with him, and I will join it with the, uh, join with it the stick of Judah, and make them together one stick, that they may be one in my hand. When the sticks on which you write are in your hand before their eyes, then say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will take the people of Israel from the nations among which they've gone, and will gather them from all around, and bring them to their own land. And I will make them one nation in the land, on the mountains of Israel. And one king shall be king over them all, and they shall be no longer two nations, and no longer divided into two kingdoms. They shall not defile themselves any more with their idols and their detestable things, or with any of their transgressions. But I will save them from all the backslidings in which they have sinned, and will cleanse them, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God. My servant David shall be king over them, and they shall all have one shepherd. They shall walk in my rules and be careful to obey my statutes. They shall dwell in the land that I gave to my servant Jacob, where your fathers lived. They and their children and their children's children shall dwell there forever. And David, my servant, shall be their prince forever. I'll make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them. And I will set them in their land and multiply them, and will set my sanctuary in their midst forevermore. My dwelling place, Mishkan, shall be with them. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forever. If there is a rosier passage of scripture in the Old Testament, you let me know. This is <laughs> a great encouragement, I think. Um, it obviously comes in the middle of, like, it feels like it skips some steps. Right after this, we have his prophecy against Gog. 
Um, and the War of Gog and Magog, which so many people jump to with these disastrous scenarios and horrific end times prophecies. Um, but this this statement that we're looking at today, this Haftarah, is following everyone's favorite part of Ezekiel, which is the vision of the dry bones. And so it is naturally very happy. It almost seems like time, even if it's premature, time to rejoice for a minute before we get back to what is facing us in these coming days. And uh, it does this, I think, in the fusion of the kingdoms of Judah and Joseph during the Messianic era. Echoing from the Porsche reading, Judah approached Joseph. So, um, to see these two sticks merged together, uh, it takes us down several different rabbit trails of interpretation. What exactly are we looking at? Aside from the merging of kingdoms, if you get more specific with it, is one being subsumed by the other? Is one rebellious kingdom getting put down and, and re-assimilated into its more powerful brother, or are they becoming something new entirely? Now, I think that is an interpretive difference that actually a few of us here in this conversation might be able to disagree charitably on. Because um, I don't think it's all that clear in the text what Ezekiel's intention is um, in describing the return of some of these exiles. But he's already looking at the nation of Israel, the northern kingdom, that has already been in exile for a while. And he is now looking forward at, not looking forward in a good sense, by the way, but looking towards what will happen to, to Judah. And uh, altogether, he sees the two of them come back together. So if I can take the risk today and just ask for kind of like a show of opinions, whether it's hands or voices, what do y'all think? Is it just Israel, the, the tribes of Israel that were not part of Judah, are they coming back in repentance to Judah and being something new? Or are both of these groups, both sticks, being made into a holistically new thing? Or is, even, is that even the best dichotomy if you guys have a secret third answer? Let me know. But what's your what's your gut opinion here? You gonna have a crack at it, uh, John, or shall I have a go? Yeah, sure. Um, I mean, my first thought really is that it's it's not quite either of those. It's more of a returning to the original idea. You have Jacob, who becomes Israel, mm -hmm. and Israel is going to be. I mean, obviously, you have Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And you have this, this continuation of talking about Israel this, Israel that, Israel the other thing. And then suddenly you have two different nations. Uh, you have Judah, and then you have Ephraim, or Joseph. Um which is actually one of the interesting things when you talk about the northern tribes, the northern kingdom, a lot of times we assume that the words Ephraim, Joseph, Israel, they're all synonymous, which on the one hand is true. On the other hand, sometimes when it says, oh, it's, it's 
that Ephraim and those who are associated with him, or Joseph or, and those who are associated with them, in the back of my mind, I'm like, why not just call it Israel? Well, maybe because Israel was what they were originally supposed to be. One nation, and you take these two sticks, and God's going to put them back together, and they will be one, as they were supposed to be. Um, and not to, I shouldn't jump into the New Testament, because that's not what we're trying to do, but you also see that with the Gentiles and the Jewish people yeah. on occasion. Ephesians 2, right? Uh, yeah. But uh, we'll leave that to another <laughs> another study. <laughs> I was going to jump there maybe prematurely too, so I'm glad that we're All at right. least in similar wavelengths. It's not the same thing, but similar principles maybe. So here's the Jewish question. Why yeah. why Ephraim? Well, out of all the ten tribes in the north, why what's why Ephraim? Why not Manashe? Why not Asher Natali Um why that one? Uh, and the well for one, Joseph has two sons. So what's wrong with Manasseh? He's the oldest. Typically, as we know in Jewish tradition, God always chooses the youngest. So it's Ephraim, not Menashe. And Ephraim is where Shiloh is. Yeah. Hmm. So Shiloh and Judah are the two tribes that house the presence of God. So there's something about that and joining them together. So on the John John's idea that Israel was supposed to be Israel, this whole idea of the split was never supposed to happen which would be true, and uh, and then this idea of getting them back together, which is a, a good thing. Um, when, how, you know, all that kind of stuff. Well, may, maybe we, over, we overlook it. But again, Jewish tradition, you can get into the nuts and bolts to be able to teach your, your, your congregation something. Yeah. Um, but uh, but I, I'm with uh, probably you guys on being. This is a. It's definitely um, post-exilic. It's it's a return from somewhere. It's a rejoining. So something's going back to the way it was or was supposed to be, and he uses tribes um, that that housed the house of God. So there's something about the presence of God, which of course picks up right at the end. Right, I'm going to be in their midst. I'm going to have my sanctuary there. Well, the sanctuary wasn't Shiloh, and the sanctuary wasn't Jerusalem. So, a small, small key there. Yeah, but it's a sign yeah, to the nations. At the end of the day, yeah, one of the most interesting. Yeah, whatever we're talking about, it's for Gentiles. This whole point is so that I can make my name great amongst the Gentiles, mm -hmm. uh, which is. Yeah. So Jewish. I think one of the most interesting phrases in here is verse 18. When your people say to you, as compared to um, verse 20, 28 or 27, I will be their God and they mm -hmm. will be my people. There's this differentiation in the pronouns themselves, which say, are they my people right now? They're your people. Yeah. They will be my God, my people. I will be their God. Yeah. 
I wonder if that is downstream of this uh, pretty specific list from 24 to 28. My servant David shall be king over them, and they shall all have one shepherd. I'm not entirely sure whether Ezekiel believed in a resurrected David or if he more likely is seeing the Davidic line and the the memory of David, the line of David, um, the son of David, essentially standing in for him. Because it seems as though he's describing a messianic leader here. They shall walk in my rules and be careful to obey my statutes. They shall dwell in the land that I gave to my servant Jacob where your fathers lived. They and their children and their children's children shall dwell there forever. And David, my servant, shall be their prince forever. It's a, it's a change of terminology here between king and prince. And when Ezekiel describes anything messianic, he typically uses um, the term, um, oh man, I'm pretty sure he more often says um, prince. Yeah, I think you it's might be right. Stop. I think yeah, I think it's because the Davidic line had ended after four hundred years, so they had a small problem with thinking about it literally. Mm -hmm. They they had to go mess like the more eschatological messianic. So yeah. I think you're right, Phil. I think by this stage you're beginning to look at a um a messianic nuance onto the term "my servant David." Mm -hmm. Did they think of a resurrected something? I'm not sure, but they, yeah. but they, but they had to start think of thinking of a messianic character because yeah. the physical line had failed utterly, mm -hmm. which is, uh, you know, sad but true. Yeah. He he also says that I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them, and I will set them in their land and multiply them, and will set my sanctuary in their midst forevermore. So what's a covenant of peace, Phil? Can you tell me? Yeah, I was about to, to bring it for everyone. Oh, damn. As far as, <laughs> as, far as I see here, this um, covenant of peace, first of all, can be, could be seen between the two nations that are now not two nations anymore, but one. But also... Um, I do think God is not just mediating something between two parties. He himself is a party in all the covenants that he makes. He is a party. In fact, even beginning with Abraham, the party that upholds both ends of the deal here. Um, and so I think there probably are some nuances that I'd like to hear if you guys have thoughts. There's some nuances that have escaped me. I don't know exactly if he's positioning himself as fundamentally not at peace with them, but he will be. Or if uh, if there's something deeper here, because as you guys know and routinely tell our friends around the world, shalom is a lot more than than simple lack of violence. Oh, true. The, the like it says, you know, karate lehem brit shalom. So if you were Jewish and you'd heard the word brit shalom, I'm going to make a brit shalom. Mm -hmm. Then the only time you've ever heard that before is in the Torah, in the Book of Numbers, when Pinchas. Uh, the grandson of Moshe takes a spear and stabs the prince of Simeon and some princess of Midian, and uh, and and kill because they're sort of copulating in front of the Mishkan. Mm -hmm. And uh, God says, "Whoa, this this guy, he's so zealous. You know, I'm going to make a covenant of peace with him." You know, and and at the first time the word is ever used uh, is 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 sort of there, and um, 
completely unexplained without any details what exactly a covenant of peace is other than God says I'm going to have it with him and his descendants forever. Ergo, if you take that literally, there's some priestly family on the planet today who's experiencing a covenant of peace with God because of something that their ancestor did. Um, but just like here in here in the text, it and what occurs in um, the Torah, it doesn't say what a um, Brit Shalom is. Yeah. What's your chat there, buddy? Ah, uh, it's just giving Phil an option for later if he can weave it in. Oh, cool. Um, I didn't want to interrupt this particular concept. Yeah. The the piece, of course, is yeah, and uh, and it's but it's but it's a strange concept. A covenant <laughs> of peace, which occurs after a very violent event. Yeah. So is the joining of the two sticks together a violent event that now requires a covenant of peace? If it's the new covenant, why haven't we said so? Because other yeah. prophets are very happily to say the word the new covenant. Mm -hmm. um, but because it says the covenant of peace, Brit Shalom, it therefore, by definition in Jewish exegesis, has to go back to the um, what's in the Torah, of which we know nothing about. Um, it's not the new covenant. Mm. It's something else. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. You can you disagree know, I... with me if you want, but you're still mm -hmm. going to be stuck by saying, well, why didn't he call it a new covenant then? Exactly. I think a lot of times, especially when Christians are reading in the Old Testament, we will find anything and everything that uh, we can pull from the New Testament backwards. And sometimes right. we can misidentify and, and wrongly combine things here. And a new covenant versus covenant of peace does seem to be, uh, even in its context right here, this seems to be a function within the broader thing, whereas a, the new covenant seems to be an overarching description right. of an age for a lot yes. of people. But yes, this is, and this, this, is, one, this one includes a sanctuary. Yeah. But this one says, I'll, I'll have a covenant and I'm going to put my tabernacle in it. So it's like some physical building, which yeah. the new covenant does not have. We are the physical building. Yeah, that that it is, and so we we kind of find ourselves running up to the crosshead of um, man. Is Ezekiel talking about me right now? And a lot of people <laughs> are going to run wherever they want with it. And I I'm sorry to say I'm just not entirely sure, um, but I do believe that if it's if this is giving us all the hints and signs that it's in a messianic context, then it's not going to be. Um, relegated to a few political um, events in our lifetimes, though they might coincide. If the Messiah is not in this, then whatever treaties of peace we look at today, they're probably not the same thing as a covenant of peace that God himself makes with his people. And that's very important because I know in the midst of the war, a lot of our friends, I think with all the best intentions, are scanning the scriptures, which I praise God for because they're getting into the scriptures, yeah. But they want to, to find you know a key to figure out what's happening and why why is it now, and without without getting rid of the the without getting rid of the love for understanding God's hand at work in the world, a little bit of of humility to say actually I think that this is bigger than us, this covenant of peace yeah. that God is making with His people um, is bigger than I can imagine in in any of what's going on now. 
The covenant yeah. here is also yeah. there's no sacrifice attached to it. Mm -hmm. Like it doesn't. There's no yeah. shedding of blood. There's no contract. It's a it's a one sided covenant. Right. There's no obligation on Judah and Ephraim. There's no, if they do this, then I'll do X. It's just, I'm going to. And uh, it's the covenant that's mentioned in the Torah with Pinchas is the same. right? God makes a, a brit shalom with the house of Pinchas, and there's no requirement on Pinchas to do anything. Mm. And, and, and the, same, the same is here. Um, yeah. Whatever that is, and I don't. Don't know. <laughs> I, I have no clue what a covenant of peace is. Yeah. It seems to, yeah, but it seems to go hand in hand with um, this kind of rhythm in Torah that we find of God declaring that um, I will be their God. They shall be my people. And this is a new, I mean, it's not entirely new, but this doesn't seem to be for the first time ever. This seems to be a renewing of that. Um, to set a king over them, to yeah. put them back in their land where Jacob and their fathers lived. It's it's curious because in our Parsha reading, Jacob and their fathers move out of the promised land and go and resettle in Goshen. Um, and of, in, in fact, part of the story seems to be justifying how and why they got there and then eventually needed to get home uh, properly. Um, so that's a good point, Phil. I hadn't thought about that. Yeah, I don't oh, even know what to make nice. of it. It was an observation, um, not an interpretation. But I, uh, I've been stunned in the last couple of parashas how yeah. important Egypt is in the history of Israel. Yeah. So Israel, Jacob, goes into Egypt to basically incubate, right? And Joseph becomes the prince of Egypt, although it doesn't exist, and he saves the Gentiles in the area. He saves everybody. And, and like so God uses Egypt to save the entire Mediterranean basin from this yeah. horrible famine. Um, so he does that and he incubates his people. So, so you can get the prophecy that says out of Israel, I called my son. And then uh, Jesus has to go back into Israel, into Egypt. So that's got something to do with it. And yeah. then in Isaiah 19, Egypt becomes part of the highway. So there's mm -hmm. something about the beginning of Israel and the end of Israel, which includes this magical land, Egypt, it's incredibly important, more than we think. Yeah. And, um, and, and to this day, the Egyptian Coptics are the largest Christians community in the entire Middle East. And they know it. They're very quick to, to rightly uh, inform yeah. us that they yeah. are doing everything they can to remain faithful. And I've met Egyptian Coptics in Warsaw preaching the gospel and planting churches and in Jordan. Okay. You know, wow. <laughs> where you go to Jordan and you go, why is there an Egyptian Coptic church here? And uh, they've moved over. They've been working the farms for um, the Jordanians and planting churches and sharing the gospel. Yeah. There's way one to go, thing. Egypt. Sorry, what? Way to go, Egypt. Yeah. Well, that's the other thing from the Parsha. And I, I don't know exactly how much of it we should fairly try and read into the, the Haftarah because we've got plenty of a connection already. But I was struck when I was reading this morning, again, through the Parsha, that um, in verse 22, 
of Genesis 47, we're given this little tidbit. Maybe it's just a tidbit. But he says, only the land of the priests he did not buy, for the priests had a fixed allowance from Pharaoh and lived on that allowance Pharaoh had gave, given them. Therefore, they did not sell their land. Um, this seems to be um, some kind of exception to the rule that Joseph has bought up everything in Egypt, except for the priests. And the thought that popped in my head this morning was how Joseph, as a worshiper of his own God, is making a deal with priests that are surely not to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and, and Jacob, or he seems to be interacting with another nation um, that is getting quite literally saved from famine through his work. And yet their priestly establishment seems to be intact doing its own thing. Whether they give glory to, to God or not, I have no idea. I wouldn't try and read that into the text. But uh, Israel remains in Goshen, obviously, for quite a few centuries, and then is made into a kingdom of priests itself. Now, I know they have the Levites within them, but there is this mediation between God and the other nations through Israel. And uh, it seems then when we um, go back to Ezekiel at the end of this passage, to have the dwelling place among Israel again, to call them his, my people, to be their God. Um, this is the particular fact that the nations then can see and know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel and my sanctuary is in their midst forevermore. Now, I'm not trying to make a, a large connection there. It just stuck out to me and um, gave me pause, gave me reason to want to study more um, what it means for for Israel, for the people of God to interact with other peoples and other priests. Um, for these other gods. If they have no part in the picture, if they are a foil, an antithesis, antagonist, if it's simply a historical detail that doesn't relate all that much, I'm perfectly fine accepting that. But um, that's what these well, conversations are good to, for. There's got to be something in there. I mean, yeah. in, in the studies that I've been doing with my little rabbi friends, they're constantly looking at the... At the, um, the the way Hebrew should be read and isn't in the Bible. So it says, you know, Vayigash Yehuda Elav, right? So uh, uh, Joseph, Yosef. Mm -hmm. So it should just say El Yosef, right? That would be the correct Milat Yachas. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yehuda Yigash yeah. El, he goes to, mm -hmm. um, uh, so. But because he says a love, they they say that you know they they look at the text thing. He doesn't really quite really know who he's going to, who he's approaching. Hmm. Right? Because he doesn't know it's his brother. He doesn't. So he says instead of saying el Yosef, it's a love to him, whoever the him is. Mm -hmm. But because it uses the word el, what is the word el in Hebrew? God. So there's they also say that when Judah approached Joseph, he approached the God part of him. So they they love to blend God and man together. Now they'll never do that in Jesus. You know, you can never have Jesus as God and man, but you can have everybody else as God and man. And so they they will they will literally have Judah approach um, Joseph the God man. Interesting. Yeah, I, I find some of these discussions of of of, of for them quite fascinating. Um, yeah. So that they it just allows them. It, it demonstrates within the Jewish tradition that they they 
believe that the divine worked very closely with human to human flesh. Mm. And so God will definitely put his sanctuary and his dwelling inside his people because he really wants to be that close. Yeah. And this is going to be a sign to the nations. Interesting. Somehow. Like the nations. But and the, there, you, yeah. mm -hmm. the Haftarah ends that the sanctuary is part of the sign to the nations. Yeah. Yeah, that is something. Um, if I can rewrite what I said, we'll see if I can edit and post. Not that uh, the last thing, I'll be their God and they'll be my people, is the itself the only sign. It is the last of this list of signs, things that will happen that together send out this message that um, our God is the Lord who sanctifies Israel. Now, there was one more thing um, I wanted to jump to. And Aaron, actually, you just took us right back to the beginning, which is perfect for it. The big thing that at least I came across in my study the big debate is who wins in this encounter? When you take the two sticks and put them together, does one come out better? Is there a, you know, a lasting tension between Judah and all that Judah represents and between Joseph and all that Joseph represents? And so this is another good fork in the road kind of question. I'd like to read for y'all one story that I came across um, from the Talmud that um, helps us think through this question, obviously, in, in typical, um, I think, Jewish fashion, always brings it back to the question of how mitzvot fit in to our reading. And this actually gets at the heart of it. We're told um, that a certain Rabbi Tarfon and all the elders were reclining in the attic of the house of Nitza in Lod. And this question was asked in front of them, is study greater or is action greater? Rabbi Tarfon answered and said, action is greater, obviously. But Rabbi Akiva, everyone's favorite Rabbi Akiva, answered and said, study is actually greater. And they all answered and said, all the elders together, surely study is greater since study brings about action. From this, we're shown that the Torah's mandate is that a Jew must both learn Torah and perform mitzvot, and the question between the two ideals, which is higher, begs an answer that's not quite simple, because each of these endeavors has itself a virtue that is lacking in the other. They say learning, by its very definition, means that the learner um, takes in something new, and they actually associate this with the name of Joseph to add, to gather something together and put together. When you learn something, you... I don't know, think you're like Pac-Man collecting all the little orbs in his uh, in his map. And yet the mitzvot uh, can be seen as a way of confessing rightly or praising or thanking God, which is found in the name Yehuda. And so this was then extrapolated for me for a little bit of time to see Judah as action and to see Joseph as learning. Um. I'm not entirely sure where I stand in that, but the the tension still seems to sit between these two, which is which is greater. And yet, if you read that story really closely, at least as another commentator has, has noted to me, that question was never exactly answered. Study is greater. Well, well, why? This person 
brings it about to say that study itself brings about action. In other words, study is greater only because studying will also bring whatever mitzvot, whatever righteous or good deeds that we do. And as for each its own, go figure. They're good in themselves. But step two implies step one, and together they fit really well. Now, they took this to be a pragmatic effect of seeing the two sticks join together. I'm curious if that sparks in y'all any thoughts. First of all, do you agree with, with Akiva and the elders? Uh, would you, by any chance, uh, put it uh, the other direction? Well, Rabbi Tafon is um, in in the Midrash, Midrashim and in the, the Talmud. He is your you know right wing fundamentalist redneck. He is mm-hmm. always uh, did it, done it, doing it tomorrow. Like he is right in there, and, and a lot of people really like resonate with him. And Rabbi Akiva is very similar though, but he is he is much more. If you're going to do something, then know why you're doing it. Mm-hmm. So he's very much like go learn, go study, and then uh, but but very much into put it into practice. Very much actually Jesus really, you know, mm-hmm. go do after you've um, figured out why you shouldn't be doing it or should be doing it. Um, mm-hmm. So you, you can sort of see these these characters. So uh, it, it's um, uh, you know Rabbi Rabbi Kiva is always an easy one to run to because he really resonates with a lot with us. Learn something yeah. and then. And then but what we learn can't stay in the study house. It, it really has to be put into practice, um, which I think also resonates with Jesus. You know, blessed is he who hears my words and does them. Mm-hmm. Sort of that, that, that kind of kind of model. Um, uh, yeah. Yeah. I, I would probably probably line up with with Akiva, of, but of course I'd always have a soft spot for Tafon saying you had such good intentions, brother. <laughs> yeah, I think I would probably do the same. John, yeah. do you have a a thought? I mean, I'm always one for learning. Yeah, but it's ultimately. You then have to ask, what is learning? Um, right. Is it just for the sake of learning? Yeah. Yeah, because we're probably yeah. our our academies are full of those people. Yeah, because you 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 automatically kind of assume in today's world that learning is the process of reading and studying and knowing about something, and there's a huge difference between a worldview that you want to have and the worldview that you follow yeah um will i act on the things that are ultimately like okay if if i want to say that the sky is going to bring out rain tomorrow do i then you know, I study it out, I, I check the weather reports, I look at everything, and then I walk outside the next door with my, you know, flip-flops on, and, <laughs> and um, you know, it's six degrees outside, and I'm in my t-shirt. Um, that, that, that always happens to you, John. That's like a common thing. <laughs> you yeah. know, it, 
happens to me here in Texas. I was that kid who only ever wore basketball shorts and and uh, flip flops in winter. That's awesome. Yeah. But Rabbi Tarfon is also the guy. Like just to, just to give him some credence, he's also the guy that that said the famous quote that Jesus quotes as well. The uh, the harvest is plentiful. The workers are lazy. Right? That's his thing. The uh, daylight is fading. The master is urgent. And the reward is great. Mm. That's his. Um, it's very similar to what the way Jesus, yeah, posited it, and that's Rabbi Tarfon as well. So you know, he, he's he's up there along with the greats with his theology. Just that um, he was probably a lot more practically orientated than some of us might prefer. Yeah. yeah. In a sense, if we're extrapolating these out as well i mean we we only came up with these two categories because it's interpretations of the names of these two sons and in a way for better and for worse this question kind of pits is uh, pits um joseph against judah mm. and so i i read a few other voices here also really want judah praise confession that seems to link to action uh, to win out because the Davidic line, the ruling family is down from Judah. And yet it's Joseph that saves everyone. The end of this story is not uh, Judah doing something extraordinary, but Joseph. Um, so it's, it's not going to break my heart if people come on down on completely opposite sides of this question. I think it's like Aaron said earlier on, it's great to hold both viewpoints in tension at all times to see that and to comfort. Sometimes you should tell people study is good. You could st stand to go read uh, and to tell others action is better. So in a way, you know, it's set up to be answered both directions, uh, yeah. which is why it's so interesting how, how, which side a person falls down on. Cause I'm assuming we're projecting the need that we see unmet at least more so. Yeah. Nice one. Very good. John, I, I think I cut you off with that. Okay. Well, do you guys have any any final thoughts, questions, comments, or concerns? <laughs>